the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the Friday edition of the show. We come to the end of another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Whatever that question might be, we'll do the best that we can to answer it. If we don't know the answer, I'll tell you I don't know it, but I'll find out what it is. 340-9585 is the number for your live local calls, 340 340- 9585. You can also call us toll free at 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send the questions in to us. If you're driving in your car, I tell you every day the safest way to call is to use the KSLR mobile app. It also is free. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. You know, Friday programs are exciting for me because I'm getting ready for church Friday night and then we've got church Sunday. But as I speak to you, I know that you're planning on going to church this weekend. So I tell you, most of the time on Fridays, go be a part of what God is doing. Uh, Be someone who looks for others to help, to pray for, to talk to, to comfort, to encourage. Uh, Rather than just going to go or, or just going so someone will do something for you. Be the instrument that God can use to minister to others. As a pastor, and I'm sure I speak for pastors all over the city, We would like nothing more than to know that there's a whole bunch of people being led by the Spirit who are looking for opportunities to minister the love of Jesus Christ to people who are really, really in need. In every church this Sunday, the same group of people will be there. The lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, and the confused. They're the ones who need you. And you get an opportunity to be Jesus' arms, His heart, You get to be the one who offers wise counsel and direction. All you have to do is be available for the Lord. Tonight for us at Calvary Chapel, we're in Acts chapter 12. It's a fun chapter for me to teach. Uh, We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 um, on Sunday here at at church at Calvary Chapel. Um, before we get into questions, I've got a couple of questions that were sent in. I've had quite a response, or we've had quite a response, to the program that Paula and I did yesterday. Um, questions, people in, in, in need, one of them, the second one that I'll deal with, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to deal with a few more issues. Um, but, I, but we really appreciate it. You know, the phones are quiet sometimes on Thursdays, and we never know if anybody's paying any attention. But we've had really quite a response, so thank you very, very much for the things that you've said and the questions that you've asked. Uh, I'm only going to do two of them because they're kind of, um, the subject is covered in the same, um, in all the questions. So uh, here's one from JT from our mobile app. And he says, I want to start washing my wife in the Word. Where in the Bible would you recommend that I start? We are both Christians. JT, God bless you. 
for wanting to do this. This is music to a, a warm a pastor's heart. Um, start anywhere. Start anywhere. Um, I, I usually recommend Ephesians, um, but, I, but I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if this is the first time you're going to be in the Word together or not. But Ephesians is a great place to start. Don't go too quickly through it. Don't try to bite off such big chunks that it becomes uh, laborious. Instead, just you and your wife. Uh, what I normally do is suggest that as you sit down, you read a chapter out loud to her and give her the Bible, let her read the same chapter out loud to you. And then just sit down and spend a few minutes talking about it. Now, the the chapter in Ephesians is going to take you about six minutes to read if you're an average reader. So read it, talk about it, let the Holy Spirit begin to knit your hearts together, JT. The, the, The supernatural work that God will do in binding your and your wife's hearts together is going to be the best thing ever. It'll mean your conversation will have meaning and purpose and direction. It will be led by the Holy Spirit. Don't teach to her like you're the pastor and she's the student, but make it a two-way communication. So I would suggest that you start with the book of Ephesians. When that's done, then bite off something a little bit bigger. Go to the Gospel of John. If you're, if you're new believers, the Gospel of John is, is another good place to start. But kind of determine... Um, where you are, where, where are you in your walk? Have you spent time in prayer together? Have you spent time in the Word? The only other thing that I would say is that I think it's really important that that you and your wife not only read together but pray together. Uh, it's not something you have to do every day. The reading should be, but it's not something you have to do every day, to, the prayer. But but you ought to take time to, to pray for it. It can be quick prayers. Lord, uh, I'm getting ready to go to work. Would you bless my wife? Would you protect her? Let her pray for you. God's blessings on you. And get ready, JT, because the Lord is going to do an amazing work. And men, if more of us were like JT, if we would be those men who would sit down with our Bibles open, um, you, you talk about transform lives, transform marriages. Your wives would look at you with love and respect. This is what we're built for as one flesh. So, JT, go ahead and do that. I think that's a great, great, great um, effort. Let's go to Cindy calling from San Antonio on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm curious about um, in, in churches when communion's being um, taken, there's some pastors that have said that this is his um, body that was broken when we're having the bread, and other pastors say that his body was not broken because no bones were broken. And I'm curious as to what um, what's going on with that. And I had another question that may seem kind of silly, but I'm very curious about it. When he fed all those people, when Jesus did, um, what kind of bread do you think it was? Do you think it was unleavened bread or leavened? Because I know it said loaves of bread, but right. I'm, I was just curious about it. So I will okay, listen I Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate it. I can answer the second question. I yesterday, too, um, very much. I, I definitely oh. am still thinking about it. <laughs> Thank you, Cindy. God bless you. Uh, the second question, Cindy, I can answer very quickly. It's it's a great question. It would have been um, the, 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 the bread of the poor. For, for us, it would be almost like um, chewing on a dog biscuit. It was a little boy. It was his lunch. Um, that's all he had. And these would have been the, 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 the smallest little bits of bread. They're not great big bread um, loaves like we would think, or they're not big wafers of unleavened bread at all. Um, it was uh, barley bread, uh, and, and this was um, um, uh, significant because that was the bread that was uh, typically given to the poor because they couldn't afford anything else. It makes it even more remarkable. The, the, the scope of that miracle. And that one miracle, Cindy, is so important because um, it's reported on in all four Gospels. God is repeating it. He's really trying to get us to understand that God is the provider of everything that we need. And if he's called us to start serving, as Jesus was telling his disciples, you feed them. 
Well, then he'll provide what it is that we need to successfully perform the service. So it was barley bread. It was, um, um, we would say, not day-old bread, but maybe week-old bread. It, it just wasn't something that um, that people of any means would participate. I think there's a message there, Cindy. Regarding your first question, my body broken for you, Jesus said that himself. So we know that his body was broken. No, no bones were broken, for sure. But his body was broken. His back was ripped open. His face was beaten beyond recognition um, as human in form. Um, uh, he had nails piercing his hands and feet. Uh, more likely his as uh, his lower wrist um and and um, um, you can imagine the the agony that Jesus was in, so yes, his body was broken, but it's also true that his bones weren't broken, so I think most pastors certainly ought to be able to make that distinction between those two things, but there's no doubt that his body was broken. One of the things, Cindy, that I'll say about this, and this isn't your question, but we get questions on it a lot, um, you know, there there is um, certain religions and denominations within Christianity um, that that really believe that the, the, the cracker becomes the body of Jesus, uh, that the blood really, or the cup, the wine really becomes his blood. Um, but Jesus was speaking symbolically there. When he said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you, uh, he was still in his body. He was telling his disciples about uh, what's to come, sort of like previews of coming attractions. And uh, he was saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to take the punishment um, that your sins deserve. I'm going to take that punishment upon me so that you can't be punished. And what I always say, Cindy, when we're doing communion here is that cracker is, is like a love letter from Jesus. I love you so much that I can't bear to see you punished. I love you so much that all I want is to take away your pain. And to do that, he had to take our pain. So, Cindy, that's what communion is all about. Thank you very much for the kind words, and thank you for the questions. 340-9585 for your questions. Here is another question from yesterday's program. Uh, A little long, but I'm going to read it because I think there's a bunch we can talk about. It's anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ann and Sister Paula, thanks for such a wonderful, helpful program on the radio. I've emailed multiple times in the past regarding my condition. I'm married to an unbeliever and a classic narcissistic personality. My therapist gave him that title and also said people with these disorders do not um, change except for a miracle. Uh, my husband has frequent outbursts and verbally abuses me and even threatens me. My young child is exposed to all of this. I work hard to earn a living. I try my best to do all the work at the house and care for my child. But each time my husband hurls all those curses, I feel like I'm shoved to the bottom of a dark well, and it takes a lot for me to get up and move on. Uh, these abuses have taken a toll on my health also. I go through episodes of sickness and a very few normal days. I read the Bible and pray given the amount of time and the number of days I physically can, but I seem so helpless every time he yells at me and curses me. I don't think there's any curse in English language that he's not used on me. My husband has variable moral boundaries since he does not have accountability to anybody and because he is the Lord of his life. I completely agree in your stand on divorce and I personally don't want to give up on my marriage because I love him. However, the toxic conditions at the house is affecting all areas of my life and my child's. Whether a miracle happens or not, I want to live the rest of my life in the will of the Lord, and I know that I'm reaping the consequences of my choice. I would love to know your thoughts, and if there's the slightest chance uh, that you guys could offer counseling to us or to me, I would love that. couple of things, and let me start sort of at the, at the end. Um, um, we get lots, because of the radio show, Paul and I, we get lots of requests for individual counseling uh, from people who don't come to our church. Uh, honestly, I, I don't have time, and Paula doesn't have time, uh, for, for all the people that, that want us to counsel them here in our church. We've got a pretty large staff here, and we've got some really capable counselors. Um, but but the, the reason I even bring this up is because as Christians, 
you should be going to your own pastors. You've got investment in them. They know you. If you go to a mega church, you don't know the pastor at all. He's just sort of a talking head. Well, well, there are other pastors on staff. Those large churches have big staffs as well. But you need to be involved in a body that you're involved in all the time. Somebody that you're hearing teaching the Word of God. Because really that's all counseling is. Counseling is not uh, anything more than using the gift of teaching one-on-one or one-on-two and telling people what the Bible says. Honestly, uh, I tell people if they do what the Bible says, things will get better. If they don't do what the Bible says, things are going to get worse. And and I'm busy. I don't mean to imply that I'm important at all. I'm just really, really busy. Schedules are so tight. I teach three times a week. We've got the radio show every day. We're, we're, we're just busy. And we don't really get a chance to follow up. And the most important things that I ever have to say are when I'm teaching the Bible. And so when somebody comes from my church and we're counseling them, or even if I'm doing it myself, I can say to them, how many times have you heard me say this? Well, I've heard you say it a lot. Well, why aren't you doing it? And I want to be really, really direct with them. I don't want to waste their time or mine if people aren't going to obey the Word of God then their situation's not going to improve. In fact, it's most likely going to get worse. And we want to give them the opportunity to make sure that here's what it says, here's what you do, and how you do it. And then the answer to the pain that you're in, Anonymous, is Jesus has to be enough for you. You know when the Apostle Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to take the pain away, the thorn in the flesh, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient. And as horrible as your situation is, and believe me, I know it's horrible. You love your husband. You married him when you knew he wasn't a believer. That's the consequences that you refer to. So now you've got to trust that the Lord is going to give you the strength to deal with the consequences. Now let me also say this. I really, 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 and I hope I'm making that clear how much I really don't like it when I hear uh, what I call psychobamble. You know, uh, a classic narcissistic personality, a therapist told you that. Your husband's a sinner. He doesn't want anything to do with God. He's in rebellion against God. That's his problem. And you don't need to be at a therapist. You don't need to be in secular counseling. What you need to do is spend whatever time and energy you have with Jesus in the Word letting the one who can comfort your soul do so. It still amazes me after all these years that Christians will sort of blow off biblical counseling. And I don't mean just a a counselor who is a Christian. I mean somebody who is counseling directly from the Bible. This is what it says. This is what you do. And yet we'll go to somebody in the world who doesn't believe in God either. That's the cause of your problem at home. Why do you want to add to that problem with a therapist? First Peter chapter 3 is what saved my life. Paula stayed with me. A therapist would have called me a classic narcissist. I didn't want anything to do with God. Paula stayed with me because God asked her to, and First Peter 3 told her how to do it. And no matter what I did, I couldn't take her joy away, no matter how big a jerk I was. Now, I didn't curse. I've never been much of a curser. But I was ugly to her. I was inconsiderate and unthoughtful and worse and worse and worse. But I couldn't steal her joy. Why? Because Jesus was there in abundance. So now is the time for you to tell your husband that right now, because of the way he behaves, you're going to get so close to Jesus that nothing he says can hurt you. You need to be involved in a church, and you need to be involved in more than just going. You need now to be surrounded by fellowship as never before. And feeling tired or beaten down 
can't be an excuse to miss. You need to go. And if you're determined to save this marriage, then you've got to be sure that you're closer to Jesus than ever before. And that's going to require you. And here's one of the reasons that I'm so opposed to people going to therapists, especially secular therapists, is because they'll put the focus on you. You've got to take the focus off you. You've got to put the focus on Jesus and look at your husband not as the enemy of your ministry, but the object of your ministry. And if you'll do that, I promise you God's grace will be sufficient. It doesn't mean that your husband's going to change. It doesn't mean that suddenly life is going to be manageable. What it means is that you will realize there's only one place to run, and that's to Jesus. And the worse you feel, the more broken you feel, the more you need to run to him with what little strength you have. Your husband can't tell you not to go to church. You work, you support at least part of your family, if not all of it. You didn't say if your husband works, but I assume he does. So you say, well, I'm going to church. You know, Paula, when she was praying for me for 13 years, I told her if she wanted to spend any time with me, she was going to have to do it on the golf course. She learned to play golf. She got really good, by the way. But Sunday was the day I played. That means she couldn't go to church on Sunday. You know what she did? She found a church that met on Friday. Like, we, we meet on Friday nights. Paula met a church, or found a church that met on Fridays, and she would go. Paula had friends. She was in fellowship. And that's what you need to do. Stop behaving like a victim. And let your husband see a conqueror, a more than a conqueror, through Jesus Christ. Stop trying to psychoanalyze him. Stop listening to what therapists have to say. And realize that he is a lost sinner on his way to an eternity in hell. And as you get close to Jesus, as you put the focus on him in your life, Here's what I can promise you. God will do to your husband what he did to me. He will break me, or break him as he broke me. In my case, he had to take everything away. That's how proud and horrible I was. And all the while, Paula was there filled with joy. Was she in pain? All the time. Did I make her life miserable? Worse than that. But Jesus took care of me. And he'll take care of your husband. And the sooner you run to him with your pain, the sooner that destruction will begin. Our flesh has to die if, in fact, we're going to live for him. So, Anonymous, thank you. We're praying for you. Um, we don't know you. I'm so sorry about that. But but we are praying for you, and we care deeply about you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We're inside about uh, two and a half minutes before the break. We'd love your phone calls. Here is a question from Nicholas. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God. How can we quench the Holy Spirit? if he's God. Well, Nicholas, we quench him by being disobedient. We quench him and the work he wants to do by being unwilling to participate in his will for our life. You know, God is all-powerful. Omnipotent is one of his attributes. He's, he's all-powerful, and yet the only thing on this earth that can quench the work he wants to do in us and through us is us. I mean, I'm not very strong, but I'm strong enough to stop the work God wants to do by simply refusing to partner with him. We quench the Holy Spirit by leaving sin in our lives. And Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says, quench not the Spirit of God. We're told earlier to keep being filled continually. 
And too often we just don't make room for the Holy Spirit and the work he wants to do. We're not in our Bibles so that he can convict us of sin. We're too busy so often. We're too busy to spend time in prayer with the Lord. So we can't hear from him nor can he hear from us with any consistency. There are things in our lives that we know God doesn't want, but we don't want to give up. Nicholas, all that quenches the work he wants to do. It sort of snuffs it out. You know, the Holy Spirit is a fire and it's waiting to explode. And too many of us are putting that fire out before it ever gets a chance. That's why Paul says that we're never to be lacking in zeal, but keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And we quench the Holy Spirit by holding on to unforgiveness, by being angry, by being unkind. Read Galatians chapter 5, Nicholas, beginning in verse 19. That's the bad fruit. And then the fruit of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 22. I think God will make that clear to you. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. We would love your live calls at 340-9585. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Steve. Pastor Ron, I heard you say that no one will get a second chance at salvation after death. But don't you think God might let some really good people into heaven because of the good they did? What would be so bad if when we got to heaven we found that people like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or even someone like Obama was there? I think that would be wonderful. Steve, uh, I want you to think about this for a moment, a little little more deeply. Would it really be wonderful? Um, Or would it render Jesus a liar? Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And consider the consequences of Jesus telling a lie. If Jesus told a lie, and he's not the only way, if, if somebody could get in because they're good or they did good, then we would all be lost because Jesus would have been proven not to be God at all. You know, these are emotional uh, arguments, and I hear them all the time. Um, I had somebody just this week say, you know, some people get in that I didn't think were Christians. Well, that would be okay with me. No, it wouldn't be okay with any of us because heaven wouldn't be real. It would render everything that we believe as Christians useless. We would be, Paul says, I'll use his words, we're to be pitied more than all people if what we believe is not true. So this is what we've got to understand. It sounds good. Gandhi didn't worship God. Mother Teresa, I don't know. Um, but we need to remember, our Bibles say, whether it's Gandhi, Mother Teresa, or your other example, Barack Obama, there is none good, not even one. You see, our standard of good is completely different than heaven's because good means perfect. you remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do? No, he said, I'm sorry. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus didn't give him a list right away. The first thing he says, why do you call me good? Jesus recognized that he was calling him God. The rich young ruler knew who Jesus was. Keep the commandments, Jesus said. Oh, all these I've done since my youth. Well, then there's one thing that's standing between you and me, and that's sell all your possessions because they possess you and give it to the poor and follow me. And he walked away sad. So it really wouldn't be good at all. Now, again, it makes us feel better. 
because well you know if heaven's real and we want our loved ones in heaven and we want good people to get to heaven what that does is gives us hope that we can not worship Jesus and somehow make it and we can't heaven is going to be populated by born again Christians from all over the world from all ages and times nobody else is going to be there and the way we validate that claim is that Jesus died, he didn't stay dead, and no other religious leader in the history of the world, no other person in the history of the world, can say the same thing. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. Now, clearly, there are people who are better than other people, and there are people who accomplish a lot of good. That's just God's gift to us. But unless they're perfect, and by that I mean without sin at all, and only Jesus was, they're not going to be in heaven. They're going to be in eternal torment. I don't know why that's so difficult for Christians to grasp. We like to think there's second chances. We like to think that good people are going to somehow slide in. You remember the parable of the wedding banquet? Everybody was in their wedding clothes, but the master of the banquet noticed that there was one person that didn't have wedding clothes on. Just one. He tried to get in another way. And he was escorted out. That was a very important parable Jesus was telling. And whenever we sort of embrace this false teaching about universalism or second chances or, well, God is going to be so loving that he's going to let people who did more good than bad in, We're denying the very words that came from Jesus' mouth himself. Now, Jesus loves the world. And he did everything in his power, short of forcing people to believe, in order to enable them to go to heaven. I say often that we have to literally go over Jesus' dead and resurrected body in order to get to hell, or to get to, to, to go to hell. It's not what God wants, but God so loves us that he gives us a choice and doesn't force us. So, Steve, it wouldn't be wonderful, it wouldn't be good, because if what we believe isn't true, then we're all lost. And we do a disservice to people who are unsaved by holding out hope that somehow they're going to squeeze in. Oh, they're at rest now. They're in a better place, not unless they're born again. Their torment is just beginning, and it's never, ever, ever going to end. So, Steve, in light of what the Bible says, please re-examine what you think about this. Here's a question from Jason. He wants to know, what is your opinion on the necessity of seminary before becoming a pastor? Um, Jason, I'm not anti-seminary, I'm certainly not anti-education, but God calls a lot of people um, to be pastors who've never been to a seminary. Uh, I went to a Bible college, I didn't go to a seminary, Um, and and clearly God called me to do this. Um, uh, Some of the friends in, in my life in Calvary Chapel circles are are pastoring huge, huge churches with with decades and decades worth of of successful and joyful ministry. And they never went to Bible college or seminary. Here's something that's interesting. Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul, never went to seminary. Jesus took him out to an Arabian wilderness and taught him himself. Seminary and the idea of, of education is a relatively new invention in the world of theology. In previous centuries, the way someone was trained for the ministry is they would sit under the tutelage of a a pastor who was doing the work. They would be mentored. They would sort of be their right-hand man, and, and that's how they would learn. It would eventually just sort of take over. Again, there's nothing wrong with seminary. 
But that's not nearly as important as being called by God. You know, what's interesting to me, um, Jesus' apostles, um, they were com- completely confusing to the religious leaders of the day, those who had been schooled under the, the great Pharisees, the great teachers of the law. And yet when they saw the Spirit of God moving, wondering why everybody's listening to these people, they're ordinary, uneducated men, but they notice they've been with Jesus. So here's what I would do, Jason, if you're talking about yourself, ask Jesus what to do in this matter. Ask Jesus what to do. He'll let you know. I can tell you what you can start doing right now if you're thinking that you're called to be a pastor. You need to be in love with your Bible. You need to devour it. You need to spend all of your time and most of your energy really digging in to find out everything you can about this man Jesus and what he's teaching us in his word. I think a lot of people make a mistake, Jason, of thinking, well, I'll go to Bible college or go to seminary to learn about the Bible. You can do that right now at home. Before we, Paul and I, came to Texas, before I went to Bible college even, I was actually studying much, much harder and much longer than I ever was forced to do in Bible college. Bible college was almost a break because the workload was so light compared to what I was doing on my own before. But if you're called to be a pastor, you need to love the Word, you need to devour it, you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and of His will for your life. And if you're doing that, and if you're called to be a pastor, ask Jesus then, what's the next step? I actually never thought about going to Bible college. He put that on my heart to do. And even directed me to the one that he wanted me to go to. But is it necessary? The answer is no. Is it recommended or advisable? Well, that depends on whether or not it's God's will for your life. But it certainly isn't something that we have to do before we can stand before the Lord. One other comment on this, Jason. A a guy that was... Uh, a Calvary Chapel pastor here before I ever got to town. He didn't. Uh, he was here for I think 14 years. Um, he got so tired of being what he called disrespected that he went to uh, an online seminary and um, began referring to himself as Reverend because at least if he referred to himself as Reverend, other pastors respected him. Well, there's no wonder he didn't last. Because those are the wrong reasons. We shouldn't care what anybody else thinks. What we need to do is be in tune with what Jesus wants. So, Jason, I hope that helps a little bit. 340-9585 for your live calls. We've got a uh, little bit of time left in the in this week for some phone calls. Here's a question from Linda. Uh, she says, Pastor Ron, is it okay for a woman to be a worship leader? Of course it is, Linda. Women can do anything and everything in the church except be a pastor or in leadership. Now, a worship leader is under the authority of the pastor of the church. And as long as you can play and as long as you can sing, I think you need to be pretty good. We, we don't want people standing up before the congregation who have limited skills. But if God's put that on your heart and he's called you to do it, go for it. There's nothing that can hold you back. And if you are in a church that doesn't believe that to be true, well, then if you know you're called to do it, then maybe it's time for you to start looking for another church. But of course it is okay. In fact, it is commendable. Whatever God wants you to do, you need to do it with all your heart. Now, let me make a caveat because I get these questions all the time. If God tells you to do something the Bible says you can't do as a woman, then you're not hearing from the Lord. 
but there is no problem with you being a worship leader. There's no problem at all. In fact, God bless you. And if you've got the skill to sing and play music, well, I'm actually jealous of you, Linda, because I have none of those gifts and wish I did. So um, go for it. God bless you. And don't let anybody tell you that you can or can't do something when the Lord's empowered you to do it. Here's an interesting question from Reggie. Where should the money donated to churches go? Should it go to the poor, to missions, or pastor's salary, or something else? Um, Reggie, I would say it should go to all those things. Um, you know, the, the Lord gives us a certain amount of money. He gives churches a calling, an individual calling. And our money should go wherever it is he's leading us uh, to do it. Now, there's a lot of different thoughts on this. You know, churches set aside money for missions. Um, Most churches have benevolence funds for people who are in need, but certainly we have limited um, um, funds available. Um, Pastors are, you know, we need to get paid for what we do. It's not because, it's not why we do it to get paid, but we get paid so we can do it. Um... But I think we have to be careful in all these things. I think for a church to turn away the poor, uh, the benevolence, because the pastor's making a fortune, uh, I think that's a horrible thing. You know, we've got churches in our city where the pastors make so much money, and and yet if somebody in the congregation is in need, they've got to go through all kinds of hoops uh, to get through to find out if they can make a benevolence request. Um, they got to go to counseling, financial counseling, and all those other. Um, you know, the, the 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 we can pay our pastors less money. Um, we, uh, I can only speak for our church. Um, the Lord told us a long time ago that our money is not to go to mortgages. So we made it. It's been made clear just to us, and it's just God's vision for us. Uh, it's okay if other people have mortgages on their churches. But the Lord said to me a long time ago, his his money is for ministry, not for mortgage, meaning that we weren't to ever borrow money to build a building. Um, you know, that's been a hardship for us. Frankly, we got a little tiny tacky place uh, and it's packed to the walls and to the ceilings every time the church is open. Uh, we'd love to have a big place where we could spread out, a big place where, where our, church, our church can't grow anymore. Now, if I could mortgage a building, we could do that, and we would grow, no doubt. Uh, but God said, no, it's his church, it's not my church. Um, he's asked us to do some really strange things. We have a free school. Uh, we have a free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office. We recently had a... Uh, a pediatrician join the staff at Malta Medical. Uh, we have a house, we call it Manor House, a, a home for women who are needing or getting second chances in life or who are evading dangerous situations, family situations. Uh, and just those three things, forget the radio program, the radio ministry that we do that's national, uh, forget this program, forget um joy of Jesus and all the other things that we do, just those things take up more money than we we have. So we don't have money for anything. And yet we still find a way to help the people in the church when they need it. Um, You know, we're not in the business of just handing out money to people, but uh, we want to help people. That's what Jesus told us to do. So I think the money should go to all those things. By the way, and this is just for anybody who's interested, uh, whether you come to Calvary Chapel or not, on the last Sunday of February, uh, we have a a church business meeting. It's at 6 o'clock in the evening. I think it's 5 o'clock in the evening. 5 o'clock in the evening, I think. And um, um, not too many people come. We probably have 60 or 70 people that come. But uh, it's church business meeting for anybody who wants to know where the money goes. I think churches are responsible to, to let their church body, the people who give the money, they need to know where the money is going. They need to know how much it costs to run a church, and they need to know what the salaries are. And in our particular case, even my salary is uh, open game. We, we, we go through the financial statement, the year in financial statement, and, and this is what we do. Uh, this is... Um, 
um, where the money goes. This is how much we got. Uh, and then we open it up for questions. And and um, usually it's a, an hour-long meeting, and, it, and, and the people that come are interested. They ask great questions. Um, but the truth is, Reggie, we're barely surviving here, it seems, and yet we've been doing it now for nearly 23 years. And uh, we're still here. So churches ought to do with their money what God told them to do. And the way they spend their money and the amount of money that they bring in uh, ought to be declared um, to the people who provide that money. So I hope that's what you're getting at. I hope that is an answer to your question. Here is an anonymous caller to the um, studio. Uh, how would you handle a person coming back into your life who tried to destroy your ministry and reputation? Uh, I, I can tell you exactly how I would do that because uh, we've done, we've had that happen. You know, every church has problems, and we've had people who really, really tried to take me down. And everyone who ever came back and said, "I'm sorry, I wouldn't let them get another word out of their mouth," and we welcome them back. You know, there's a lot of pain that's been caused. But in all that pain, I've grown, I've changed, uh, and our hearts remain open. Um, but we actually pray, Paula and I especially, I, I can't speak for everybody else in the church, but we actually pray for the people who have fallen away or the people who cause problems. We want to be known as as Christians. We want to be known as a church that welcomes repentant sinners back with no strings attached. So that's how we have handled and will continue to handle people coming back into our lives, uh, no matter what it is that they've done. And um, we do that because that's what Jesus would have us do. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, I know that is not the case in a lot of places, um, but, but I'm so guilty before God. How could I be unwilling to extend forgiveness to somebody who tried to destroy uh, my reputation. My reputation means nothing. What what matters, the only thing that matters, is um, are we rightly representing Jesus? And the answer to that question would be no if we were unwilling to take people back. So I hope that answers your question. Um, we love it when God brings people back into our, our lives. It happens quite often, too. That's a neat thing. I think it, it happens often because God can trust us with people. And um, I don't ever want that to change. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Ray calling on line one. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the la- on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. <clears throat> um, I, I had a couple of things cross my mind. Uh, if there if there is an update you could give us on. Uh, uh, Gail Irwin, um, because he was going to come and so on, and his wife, how how things are going there. And the other one was you uh, have mentioned several times uh, of having a Bible in your hand and flipping through the pages. You know, it was, it was beneficial um, as opposed to just reading it online or listening to a audio or whatever. I think you know what I'm talking about. But I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you a curve here and ask uh because I am eagerly anticipating a a autographed uh hardcover book that you have in the process and I wonder <laughs> if you could give me an update on that as to, you know, are we still, you know, gonna find that available somehow or okay. What and uh, have a have a beautiful weekend. Thank you, Ray. And that's about it. Okay, we're inside three minutes, so let me answer the questions. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Gail, a dear, dear, dear friend. Uh, he and his wife were in a very bad car wreck, and uh, she was hurt uh, much worse than he was. Um, but uh, both of them were injured. The last update I had. Uh, is that uh, she was still hurting a lot, uh, still trying to recover. Uh, Gail, other than soreness, he was doing okay. Um, um, 
you know, as we get older, these kind of things happen. We don't recover as quickly as we once did. Uh, I'm not on Facebook, so I don't uh, I don't get to, you know Gail is a uh, an avid Facebook poster. He uh, lets people know where he's going and what he's up to. So I, I honestly haven't for the last month got a response. I've asked Paula to contact uh, um, Gail and Ada by text, and we haven't received a response to that yet. So last I heard, they were doing okay, but it was still difficult. So please keep them in your prayers. Um, uh, relative, I, I hate asking this question. I'm not writing the book. Um, I'm supplying all the information. This is a, a, um, a joint effort between me and a man in our church who is a truly gifted uh, writer. Um, there's been a whole bunch of times that we thought the book was really close. I've actually read the proofs and and uh, having them edited, those kind of things. Uh, but you know how authors are. They get a little finicky and, and want to keep rewriting, keep rewriting. So all I can say is the book is in process. Uh, Ray, I'm confident it will get done. I just can't tell you uh, when it's going to be done. Uh, the man who's writing it uh, has a full-time job and a family, uh, and, and it's just not fair for me to put a lot of pressure on him or to give him any deadlines. I wouldn't do that if... If um, if this book is to be done, it needs to be uh, done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and God can deal with him. But at the same time, I know he's working really, really hard at it, and uh, we hope that it's going to be done. Uh, the book's name is going to be Paul as Jesus, and um, it's sort of my story, not only um, how we got here, but what God has done since we've been here. Uh, and we hope it'll be a great source of encouragement uh, to uh, to the people that read it. Um, we, we still got publishing issues and all those other things, but we're going to wait till the book's done before we deal with it. So everybody, please be patient. I'm sorry I ever mentioned it on the air, um, but thanks for your interest. Hey, remember this weekend, go to church, find somebody that looks like they need somebody to love them, and be that person, that man and woman that God can use. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thanks for a really great week on the program. Um, We love you, and we'll be back Monday, Lord willing. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.